Well, it is February 5th, which means we are about five days into February, which means you are probably five days, if you're following along with the fast track, of no sugar, no bread, no pasta, and no snacking, which also means you're probably incredibly grouchy this morning. That's okay, we'll get through this. If you watch a lot of TV, you know that there is no shortage of online dating apps or dating sites. Some of the most popular are Hinge, which is a very clever commercial, the app that was designed to be deleted. There's Tinder for the younger people in the room, eHarmony, Match.com, and and for the more salt and peppered among us, the SilverSingles.com. I mean, there are ads for online dating all over the place. And, and just so you know, this isn't anything against online dating today. There's lots of good benefits that have come from uh, online dating. And I've met lots of really strong, devoted couples who found each other through online dating. All kinds of good things about online dating. But have you ever thought about how much speed was added to the process when online dating became a thing? Like, think about how much speed was added to the whole dating process because now we can get online and find a suitable partner. I had a few friends in college who had a Tinder profile, and I don't know if you've ever watched somebody uh, on Tinder before and what they do, but essentially, you see a profile that comes up, and if it's a match, you swipe right, and if it's, nah, I don't, I don't think I could match with this person, you swipe left. Left is no, right is yes. And I remember watching my friends in college with deafening speed and incredible accuracy, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. Like, it was a work of art to see how nonchalantly and quickly they decided whether or not that person would be a suitable mate for them. Reflecting on online dating, an author I've been reading by the name of J. Kim says, this is our digital world. Even the most important decisions, like the people we choose to enter into meaningful relationships, uh, maybe even lifelong commitments, are made with such shocking speed. Anything less is considered archaic. I think he's on to something, right? We move through life with such increasing speed. We surf the web with high-speed internet. We drive over the speed limit in the fast lane. At lunchtime, we go through the drive through at fast food restaurants for a quick bite to eat. We've got a get-rich-quick scheme, and we're always trying to make a quick buck, and we're always looking for a quick fix to everything. We move through life so fast, always looking for the next thing, always moving, never slowing, never waiting. But spiritually speaking, there are times in our life And in our growth as a disciple of Jesus, where we must slow down and wait on God. we got to learn to hop on the fast track like we introduced last week. The fast track is one way where we can slow down our pace and connect with God. The fast track is a way to stop, wait, and hear from God. And today, as we continue to look at prayer and fasting in the Bible, we are going to see some integral characters in the New Testament church, some some vital leaders to the New Testament church, show us what happens when you slow down, you hop on the fast track, and you wait on God. In fact, these two men, their name uh, are Saul and Barnabas, and they overwhelmingly teach us today that we need to dedicate the wait. Dedicate the weight. And I'm not talking about dedicating the weight you might lose while we're all fasting in February, like, God, these 10 pounds are for you. No, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about embracing the waiting on God 
in a culture of fast-paced speed, we need to learn to say, here's these moments where I'm waiting, and God, I'm going to give all of the weight to you. We want to learn to intentionally wait, to, to be still, and to de- dedicate the weight all to God. And I think as we learn to wait, I think what we see and what we will see in our lives is the kingdom of God expand in ways we never thought possible. As you read through the book of Acts, it's one of my favorite books to read through, it is filled with story after story after story after story of the Holy Spirit working through people to push the message of Jesus and the truth of the resurrection forward. We see missionaries, we see preachers, we see common everyday people going to city after city after city, sharing the fact that Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. They go to city after city preaching that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and that resurrection life is now possible through him. And this news of the resurrection makes its way across the Roman world. It gains audiences with heads of state and government officials. But you need to understand, with such success, it did not come without its struggles and setbacks. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts chapter 11, uh, 12, and 13. And near the end of Acts 11, we receive warning from a prophet. uh, A prophet that says, tough times are coming for the world. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. Any millennial parents in the room? Great name consideration for your next child. Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was actually fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. All right, so so what do we have here for a moment? We have these prophets. They come from Jerusalem, and they say to this church in Antioch, it's a new church in Antioch, they say, hey, there is a famine that's coming for the entire Roman world, and I don't know if the Jerusalem church is going to be able to handle it. Things are going to get tough. And this new church in Antioch, they were, they were pretty stable, and they knew that, that Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, had helped them several times before, and so they say, we're going to help. We're going we're to take up a collection, we're going to send them money, and oh, by the way, we're going to take this money, and we're going to send it with two of our best workers, Barnabas and Saul. And then Luke, who is writing this story of Acts, he's a historian, very detailed historian, as he writes this story of Acts, he actually stops that story. At the end of chapter 11, he stops telling that story, and he goes into chapter 12, and we meet this kind of interlude in the story of Saul and Barnabas. And in chapter 12, what we see is Luke give this historical detail, this this account of two high-capacity church leaders of that day who face really, really intense persecution. James, one of Jesus' closest followers, was actually killed by a man named Herod Antipas. And immediately following that execution, the people were so ecstatic that Herod killed uh, James that they start demanding another. And so Herod Antipas has Peter arrested and thrown in prison. And while Peter's waiting in prison, God intervenes. And in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord steps in, releases Peter from prison. It was such a crazy intervention of God that Peter actually thought he was having a vision. Like, that's how crazy this scene was. He thought this was was all happening in his head. But then he wakes up outside of the prison and realizes it's all real. 
And this angel that God had sent sends Peter uh, to, to this house where all of his friends were praying for him. And they're all, of course, very encouraged and very happy that they are reunited with Peter. So things went great for Peter after being in prison. Things didn't go so well for Herod and the others the next morning. You can imagine there's going to be an uproar when people wake up and they realize that Peter, who was sitting in prison, is now gone. The prisoners that were actually in charge of watching over Peter, they wind up dead. And Herod, Antipas, he just leaves. He just leaves town and he goes to this other city called Caesarea. And while Herod is in Caesarea, the people, he's he's in this amphitheater and he's talking off this stage. The people sitting in the amphitheater start praising Herod as if he was a god. They're like, oh, Herod, you're so holy, you're so great. And Herod, rather than saying, no, 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 I'm not a god, takes the glory for himself. And that, of course, ticks off the real God. And God strikes Herod dead right there on the stage and worms come out and eat his body. Like, if y'all aren't reading your Bibles, you're missing some pretty cool stories. (laughs) So here's what happens. Here's what happens next. Here's what Luke, the very detailed historian, includes in this interlude. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 12. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. Think about how he's placing and telling this story. In the middle of famines, we read about the famine at the end of Acts 11. Saul and Barnabas, they're going to take the money to Jerusalem. In the middle of famines, executions, and imprisonment, the bad guy ends up dying and the gospel spreads. In other words, no famine, no death, no government power, no prison will stop the message of God's kingdom breaking through. That's the interlude, Acts chapter 12. Then Luke brings us back to Saul and Barnabas. Remember, they were delivering some famine relief. Here's what happens. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. We don't know what happens on that journey. All we know, it was mission accomplished, mission success. They go to Jerusalem. They drop off the funds. They come back to Antioch. And so they're waiting in Antioch. They had successfully completed this mission, and they return back to home base. Now what? I mean, after you complete a mission like that, what do you do next? You ever been in their shoes before? You push and you push and you push and you've got a clear dream or a clear vision of what you're supposed to be doing and you work and you work for days and months and years. I mean, it was probably a long journey for them to get that money to Jerusalem. And when you finally finish or complete the initiative or the project, you sit down and you go, now what? What do I do do now? I remember this feeling after having our first child. Like for nine months, everything is about getting life ready to take care of a baby. Baby, you've got the birth plan. The nursery's all prepped and ready. Your wife's been eating healthy. She's been going on walks and dragging you on walks. And you keep walking and you keep walking and you keep walking. And you just keep walking. And then finally, you have this feeling that, oh, it's getting close. The baby is coming. The baby is coming. The baby is coming. And then the baby comes. And you finish up at the hospital You get home, you collapse on the couch, and the baby is sleeping. And you look at your spouse and you're like, now what? I mean, do we really just hold this kid while he sleeps 23 hours a day? Is parenting really just sitting here looking at how beautiful your child is? For a time, just for a time. But but I remember that moment, now what? Or maybe we look at the other end of life. Some of us are going through this stage right now. For 18 years... You have loved it and poured into your kids. 
You've carted them around to sporting events. You've hosted pizza parties and movie nights. You've helped them with homework. You've been there in the good times and the bad times. And then they graduate. And they go off to college. And you become an empty nester. And you look around at your spouse and you say, now what? Or maybe you landed your dream job. And you poured your life into the company and you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked and you were a loyal employee. And then, for whatever reason, whether it was a layoff or a retirement or it was just time to move on, you wake up one day without the alarm telling you it's time to go to work and you say to yourself, now what? No matter who you are or what you do, Every single one of us have had to go through seasons of change and transition where one thing ends and we find ourselves in the in-between asking, now what? When Saul and Barnabas, having finished up their mission to Jerusalem, are facing their now what moment, do you know what they do? Next verse, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaen, the childhood companion of Herod Antipas, and Saul. Verse 2, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Aside from all the hard-to-pronounce names in there, did you see what Saul and Barnabas and the leaders of the church do while waiting for what's next? They worship and they fast. I would put it like this. Saul and Barnabas, while waiting for God to give them their next assignment, they actually practice regular practices and activities to hear from God. In the waiting, they practice regular practices to hear from God. Notice what happens. They hear the Holy Spirit But when do they hear the Holy Spirit? While they were worshiping and fasting. In other words, when they were waiting for whatever God would call them to next. We don't know how long they were waiting. Luke doesn't tell us the time details. But whatever it was that they were waiting for and however long they were waiting, they went about the regular practices that they needed to do to hear from God. They put themselves in a posture and a position to hear from God through worship and fasting. And it's interesting, uh, but the word there used for worship is a word I had never encountered before in the original language, um, and it's not used but maybe two, two more times in, in the Greek New Testament. It's this idea of these men serving in their role as prophets and teachers. That they, were, they were priests. They were servants of the church. They went about their spiritual business and duty. So, so while they were waiting, they were fasting and serving uh, the church and serving others. These men, in their waiting, Say, while we're waiting on God to tell us what's next, we're going to serve God and we're going to fast from food so that God might fill us up and speak to us. And it's in that time of waiting, serving, and fasting that they actually hear God speak. Let's be clear for a second, though. We don't like this. Like, we don't like this lesson. That's not usually how we respond. We don't like the silence of waiting. We are a fast-paced culture that always wants to get on to the next thing. We don't like the uncertainty of not knowing. One job goes, the other one had better be right behind it. One thing ends, and we're off to the next. Rarely, at least in my life, 
When I'm in seasons of waiting and wondering what's next, do I practice regular activities and practices to hear from God and wait on Him? My gut reaction is to go out and make something happen. Waiting on God is often viewed as a threat to our security and our stability because we really don't like to wait. Think about it. You walk into a restaurant, you go up to the host or the hostess, and you say, I I need a table for four. And she says, that's great. We can totally sit you down. We can fit you in. It's going to be 35 to 40 minutes. (sighs) Inhale, you know, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I'm really hungry. We look back at the rest of the party. Can we wait that long? I don't know. Can the kids make it? And we leave and we go to another place. Well, that's going to be a 25-minute wait. And then you go to the next place. That's going to be a 20-minute wait. And before you know it, if you would have just gone to the first place and waited for 25 minutes, you would have already had your food before you're waiting at the less wait, three restaurants down, right? We don't like to wait. This past week, I traveled to Boise, Idaho uh, to preach at chapel for Boise Bible College. And one of the things I've learned about myself, self-awareness is good. One of the things I've learned about myself recently is that I really don't like to travel. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sweaty and uncomfortable and tired pretty much all the time. I just don't enjoy it that much. But there's one really big reason I actually hate to travel. It's just a bunch of hurry up and wait. Like that's all traveling is. You rush to get to your gate. Why? So that you can wait to board. And then you rush to get to your seat. Why? So that you can wait to push off from the gate. And then you push off from the gate and you do what? You wait on the runway for the air traffic controller to give you clearance to take off. Then while you're in flight, you're just waiting for the snack cart to come by because that's what we do while we wait. We eat, right? And then again, when you land, what happens? You wait again to get to the gate, and then you wait again to get off the plane. And just while we're on the topic, because I've been traveling a lot lately, nothing makes me madder than somebody who doesn't know proper waiting etiquette. Like when you stand up in your seat on the row of the airplane... You let the row before you get off first. It's like midnight when I came home on Wednesday, and this guy pushes like past four rows. He had nowhere to go, but he didn't know how to wait. So so you just find yourself waiting all the time. And oh, by the way, you wait one more time for your ride once you get out to the sidewalk. To travel is to wait, and I hate it. And the reason we hate waiting so much is because we don't know what to do during that time. Do we eat? Usually. Do we scroll social media? Most assuredly. Do we keep ourselves busy and distracted? You betcha. Do we make some bad decisions? Most likely. But how often, when we're in seasons of waiting, do we think to ourselves, I'm just going to settle down into a rhythm of serving, worshiping, fasting, and waiting on God? So maybe, here comes the challenge, as you prepare for our church-wide fast, remember we're prepping our bodies for a fast the first three weeks, and then we're going to actually fast the last week. As you prep for that fast, and you think about a reason for why you might be fasting, maybe you need to figure out what you're waiting on. And you need to say, God, that last week of of February, I'm going to fast, and I'm going to do this at the time of waiting to hear clearly from you. I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to trust that you're going to speak and tell me what's next for my life. Because good things happen when we dedicate the weight, right? Look what happens again. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. You see what happens when Saul and Barnabas dedicate the weight with regular activities to hear from God? God speaks and they hear him And what happens? They receive a special work from God. 
the regular activity of prayer and fasting set them up to receive a special work from God. In the mundane of waiting and fasting and worshiping, Saul and Barnabas get to hear from God that which he has called them to. They hear and discern his voice so that they know exactly what he's sending them to next. And I don't know about you, but I long for that kind of connection and clarity from God. Like, I'd love to know beyond a shadow of a doubt exactly what God is calling me to. Yes, we have the scriptures and we can read the scriptures and we know that we're supposed to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and we're supposed to live holy and righteous lives. But, but each of us are different and God calls us to different things. I would love to know beyond a shadow of a, of a doubt that that's exactly what God is calling me to. Like sometimes, I don't know about you, I have a hard time discerning between rumblings of the Spirit and yesterday's burrito. Right, like Sometimes it can just be hard to discern what he's calling us to. But it seems to me that when we learn to practice regular activities like fasting to hear from God, we will actually hear from him. Whether it's a friend that comes in and, and speaks to us or we read something in his word or there's the thought or that nudge in our, in our heart, we will hear from him during those moments of waiting. And when you hear and discern what God is calling you to, you can then act and live in the way in which you are supposed to live. Have you ever encountered someone who is just doing what they're made to do? Like you look at them and you're like, man, God has blessed you. God has put you on this earth for one thing, and that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You see their performance and their abilities, and you're just like, my goodness, you have talent. And I totally believe God gifts those type of people, that he gives special gifts to, to, to people. But here's what I also believe. I believe that the special abilities or giftedness that we see in people that we admire doesn't just happen. I believe those special gifts that people have, when, when, when you make that realization about someone, those special gifts were cultivated. Those gifts were molded and coached. It's formed, and usually that happens in the waiting. Those people practice in the waiting. In fact, Paul would tell one of his protégés, Timothy, to cultivate the gift that was given him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh, to cultivate the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He rekindles and forms the callings and gift that God had given to him in the waiting. And we should be doing the same thing for that special work. A few years ago, it took less than 10 seconds for the famous Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt to cover one, the 100-meter distance uh, on the Olympic track and win the gold medal in London. And those few seconds, less than 10 seconds, those few seconds of running solidified his status as the fastest man alive. And it placed him on the winner's podium once again. Here's the deal about Usain Bolt and his incredible speed at the Olympics. Those races were not won in those seconds. Those races were won by the hours and hours of practice, workouts, weightlifting, special dieting, coaching, and waiting. The race was not won in the performance, but the race was one in the preparation, in the practicing, and in the waiting. You see, it is our desire to be a part of or to do something greater that will, that will force us and cause us to, to sacrifice some things, even really good things like food, for the sake of things that are better later. And so we can look at Usain Bolt and we can say, my goodness, how God has blessed that man with insane speed. And he has. But we also need to realize that for Bolt to compete at such a high level, he did a lot of practice and work in the waiting. Paul and Barnabas dedicate their waiting 
with fasting and worship. And they receive that special work from God. And I want you to understand, it is a work and a call that has massive implications. Remember where we started. Garrett, if you could throw that summary up of where we were. Remember where we started. We start with the the commissioning in Acts chapter 11 to send Saul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. And then we have that long interlude where James and Peter, uh, James is killed, Peter's in prison, and Herod uh, dies. And then Luke concludes that that section in 24 with kingdom expansion. Then we meet Saul and Barnabas and they're waiting for whatever God uh, says next. And then as you read through Paul and Bar- uh, Saul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13, verse 4, all the way to 1428, we see that there is massive kingdom expansion that takes place because of their waiting. Saul and Timothy begin a journey where they are preaching the resurrection in every city that will listen. And here's what Luke records about their efforts. Acts chapter 13, verse 44, kind of a summarizing statement. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowd, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. By the way, that's kingdom expansion right there. Verse 47, for the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. What is that? Kingdom expansion. The special work that Saul and Barnabas receive in their regular rhythm of worship and fasting is directly connected to the inclusion of the Gentiles, people who were outside of the people of God receiving salvation. Listen very closely. When Saul or Paul and Barnabas dedicate the weight with regular rhythms and receive a special work from God, it leads to worldwide kingdom expansion. That's what this whole section is setting us up for. That in the waiting, we receive a special work to help with God's kingdom expansion. And you and I have been called into that same special work ourselves. Of taking the gospel to the farthest corners of the earth. But we get so distracted. And we get so hurried with life and what's next. And we get so unfocused that when God calls us to participate in the expansion of his kingdom, to do our special work for the kingdom, we miss out on helping push the kingdom forward. And so for many of us, we may be in a waiting season of life. Here's my encouragement. Don't rush it. Don't push through it. Don't go out and try to make something happen. I would challenge you to dedicate the weight to God. In your moment of waiting, dedicate the weight to God. Seek Him more than you've ever done before. Don't only fast to just check the challenge off the list, but fast so you can pray more, rely more, and depend more. In that period of waiting, empty yourself in worship and in fasting and in serving God so that you can be filled up with His Holy Spirit and you can discern exactly what He's calling you to next and how He's calling you to expand His kingdom. And as you wait with prayer and fasting this month, wondering and asking what God has for you next and how he wants to use you for this kingdom expansion effort in the world, just ask yourself a few questions during your prayer time. Questions like, who are you calling me to? I think there's a list on the screen. Who are you calling me to? Saul and Barnabas were directly called to the Gentiles, people who were outside of of God's people. 
Where are you calling me? They went on a mission, missionary journey. You might not have to move, but maybe there's a specific place. It could be a gym or a restaurant or your work. Where is God calling you to expand his kingdom? How, how are you going to tell them? When you're with those people, how, how are you going to tell them? What, what tools do you need to equip now? Remember, it doesn't happen in the performance. It happens in the preparation. So, so what do you need to learn now so that you can have a, an answer to share with them? Who's going to go with you? Saul had Barnabas. Barnabas had Saul. What do you need? Again, is there more equipping that needs to take place? And then another question. Remember, they were serving and fasting while they waited. How does God want to use you where you're at now? You don't have to waste the time. How does he want to use you where you're at now? And I also want you to know, as you seek on uh, this calling from God on what's next in your life, I want you to know you're not doing this alone. As we've mentioned several times, we have dedicated this month, February, to prayer and fasting to God. And I want you to know that we came up with another practical way for you to dedicate the weight this month. And I know what you're thinking. It wasn't one challenge last week enough. I mean, I don't think I can take any more, but I've got one more, at least one more for you. On February 27th and 28th, we are going to establish this building uh, as a prayer room to pray for 24 hours. All right, so from 6 p.m. on February 27th until 6 p.m. on February 28th, we're going to open up the doors. I'm going to sleep in my office, and this place will be open for you to come pray. We've got half-hour time slots, and we want everybody to take a half-hour time slot and just pray. There's going to be different prayer activities and prayer stations that you can do, but use this time as a way to dedicate the weight. Say, I'm going to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to go to the church at 2.30, and I'm going to pray for a half hour as we as a church dedicate the weight to God. If you want to sign up for one of those time slots, there's a sign-up sheet on the pallet wall out there. Mary Pistorino will be sitting out there to answer any questions that you have. I would strongly encourage you. This is when we end the fast, all right? So if you're real smart, you, you maybe like do the 5.30 time slot on the 28th, and then you go feast at 6 p.m. after you've been fasting, something like that, all right? So consider a half-hour time slot, February 27th, 6 p.m. to February 28th at 6 p.m. Let me close with this. You know, I always like to try and bring it back to Jesus. Jesus says multiple times in his life and in his ministry, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus waited for 33 years to fulfill his mission on earth. And you know what he did with that 33 years? He dedicated the weight to God. Luke chapter 2 says that he grew in favor with God and man. During that time, he served the people around him. He fasted. He went to worship at the temple. He feasted with friends. He discipled men and women. He prayed. He laughed. He cried. He waited. And then, at the perfect time, fully obedient to the voice of his Father, Christ died for you and for me and launched a kingdom expansion effort that has forever changed the world. And it's a kingdom expansion effort that you and I get to participate in as we wait on God for what's next. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we don't like to wait. We like to move and move and move. We, we, just, we stay busy all of the time. And Father, this story of Saul and Barnabas aren't the only examples in Scripture where we see people waiting and them hearing from you but God it sure is an encouraging one because it shows us that our waiting is actually connected to something bigger than ourselves but when we learn to wait and wait well and we use that waiting 
Father, we see that it leads to your kingdom expansion. And, and when we talk about kingdom expansion, what we mean is that people get to experience life. What we mean is that people who were once dead are now living. And what we mean is that people who might die one day will get to experience resurrection life and that there is hope and there is joy and there is peace and there is comfort. That's what kingdom expansion means. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn to wait we would wait well, that we would wait with service, that we would wait with prayer, and that we would wait with fasting so that we can hear what you're calling us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.